about coming up here and get caught in the stampede going the wrong way. Well, this morning we are in Ezekiel chapter 38, and this is the battle of Gog of the land of Magog, the defeat of Gog of the land of Magog. Brother, is your microphone on? Uh, now it should be. Is that better? Okay. That will save my voice from yelling. Good. Now, in his commentary, be reverent, Warren Wiersbe opens the chapter on this section with this sentence. Many Bible scholars consider this section of Ezekiel to rank among the most difficult prophetic passages in Scripture, and they don't all agree in their interpretation. And I would say from some of the things I found in studying this passage, that's an understatement. There's a lot of different people think a lot of different things about this section. We're in that... If you do a broad outline of Ezekiel, there's three sections. We're in that third section about the restoration of Israel and how God's going to accomplish it. We looked at chapter 3, the warnings of the watchman and repentance from sin. 34, the false shepherds and the true shepherd. 36 and 37 last week, the national revival of the land, the nation, and the people, as our brother John showed us. We're going to talk about the defeat of the enemies of Israel today. And next week, our brother Jacob will take up the new temple, the return of the glory of the Lord, and the living water flowing out from under the temple. So that gives you kind of an idea where in the scheme of things we are. So let's begin by reading chapter 38. Not too long, only 23 verses. I'll just read through it. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out, with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togarma from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, On that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely. 
all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. To take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited, and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty? To carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel dwells safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? And it will come to pass at the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. So I thought the way I would approach this this morning is as a journalist. And if you remember from your, well, my high school English classes, I don't know if they still teach this, but there were the five W's, the where, the who, the when, the why, and um, what's the other one? How. How. Yeah, well, how is not a W. There's another W. Anyway. You'll get them as I go through. The what? That's the one I missed. All right. So the first one we'll tackle is the where because it's the simplest one. There's really no controversy over that. In verse 8, you hear mountains of Israel. In verse 9, he says, covering my land, covering the land. Verse 16, against my people of Israel. Verse 16 and 18, against the land of Israel. So everyone who treats this as an actual battle agrees that the battleground is the land of Israel. So, we'll keep, let's see, is this going to...
Can you move? Yeah, there we go. Okay. The land of Israel, right down here in this little square. Okay, that's where it's all going to take place, in that little place. Israel's not very big. There's really no disagreement on that. So let's move on to the who. Who's going to be involved in all of this? Right away in verse 2, you see the first disagreement. The translators can't agree on how to translate the word rosh in Hebrew. I have the New King James here that I read from. It says Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Some of you may have the King James, or I believe the, <coughs> the ESV also says Chief Prince of Meshach and Tubal. And the translators can't seem to agree on whether the word Rosh is a proper name of a country, which it could be. It's all used elsewhere as a proper name. Rosh is one of the, the name of one of the sons of Benjamin. And the grammatical construct in Hebrew allows you to look at it that way. But the King James translators and, and other modern translators have translated it as a noun which modifies the word prince, and they say chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. It's a disagreement. It doesn't really affect too much how you're interpreting the whole passage unless you're really intent on tying this all in with modern-day Russia, and then you have Rosh, Russia. kind of sounds the same, but for our purposes today, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference, but that's the translation difference. He speaks of Gog of Magog, Meshach and Tubal. If you remember Genesis chapter 10, these are all sons of Japheth, the son of Noah. So is Gomer. And Togarma, who's mentioned in verse 6, is a son of Gomer. So I went back and I took this map from the Moody Bible Atlas and these are the nations of Genesis chapter 10. That chapter is sometimes referred to as the table of nations because it gives all these people. And you notice they're all up here in the north. They're Meshek, Magog, Tubal, Tagarma, Gomar. They're all up there. Now some people will put it a little more to the north and the east between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Some people want to put it even further north than that. It's still north of Israel. So they're coming out of the north. The Bible also mentions Persia. Persia would be to the east over here. And then it mentions Libya. Ah, there we go. Libya is over here. Ethiopia would be here. So you can see that this army is going to come from all directions. It's going to come mostly down out of the north, but there's going to be some coming from the east, some coming up out of North Africa from the south. It really makes it hard to defend yourself when you're being attacked on all fronts. So we see the who is doing the invading. But who's being invaded? Well, this little land of Israel attacked by this massive force from all directions, 
not much of a chance of defending themselves. And it uh, specifically refers to them having their defenses down. When he talks about unwalled villages, in his day, that was their defense. You had a wall around your village or your city. If Israel were to drop the Iron Dome today and have no defense, they would be in big trouble. All those rockets that are getting lobbed at them, they wouldn't be able to shoot them down. So Israel, the invaders, the being invaded, is pretty much defenseless. They're not defending themselves at this time in this battle. And who's the architect of all of this? Who designed it all? Well, the Lord God designed it all. He's the one. You know, our passage starts off with the word of the Lord came to me. So we know where it came from. We know who designed all of this. So, we've done the where, we've done the who. What is going to happen? Well, the invaders are going to come against the mountains of Israel like a cloud. They're going to be thinking evil thoughts. Verse 4 tells us they have plenty of weapons, lots of them. Verse 15 refers to a great company, many men. It says they're on horses, so this is not a bunch of foot soldiers coming in. It's a big army. They're coming against unwalled villages, a country at rest, dwelling safely, verse 11 tells us. So what is the Lord's part in all of this? Well, in verse 4, again in verse 16, and again in chapter 39 and verse 2, our text tells us that God himself is the one who's bringing these invaders in. He has settled Israel, brought them back, made them feel so safe that they've eliminated all their defenses. They're just sitting there. And you think, why would God set this up like this? But God does this because He wants people to see that it's Him and not them. He wants them to know who is defending them and who's fighting the battle. It kind of reminded me a little bit of Gideon. You know, he started out with 30,000. God says, that's too many. Whittled it down to 3,000. Still too many. 300. Impossible to defeat the enemy with only 300 men. Nope. God did it. So God wants to has set this up this way because he wants to make absolutely certain that they know that this is him. Now what does he actually do? Well, in verse 17, he tells us, I've spoken of this in other prophecies. I've spoken in the former days by my servants who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them. In verses 19 and 20, it says he'll use an earthquake. Verse 21, God's going to cause the invaders to turn against each other. They're going to use their swords against each other. In verse 22, he's going to use pestilence, rain, hail, 
fire and brimstone. You know, I thought about that. I, I read this statement this week that uh, climate change is our most... How did he say it? it? It's the most concerning thing in the world. You have to be concerned about this. It's our biggest problem. And I thought to myself, that's not really the enemy here. The problem is that we offend the one who controls the climate. Our godless society doesn't want anything to do with God, and God uses climate. And he's very precise with these weather events. You know, if you remember Elijah on Mount Carmel, Elijah put the sacrifice on the altar, put the water on it, put the water all around, and it says fire came down from heaven it consumed the sacrifice, it consumed the altar, it consumed the water, but it didn't touch Elijah, it didn't touch the prophets of Baal, it didn't touch the people of Israel who were watching. God can be very precise with his climate events. You read in Amos, he says, I made it rain here, but not over here. I got a funny story about that. I painted my house one time. I think I told you this one maybe once. I painted my house. It rained. All the paint ran down off the side of my house. I went four miles to my in-laws, and it had never rained a drop over there. God can be very precise when he wants to be. And then we have the aftermath of this battle. I'll read some portions from chapter 39 as I go through that. Chapter 39, verses 3 through 5. And I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the people who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. So very clearly, God himself will be the one to defeat them. Verses 8 through 10. Surely it is coming and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. They will not take wood from the field nor cut down any from the forest because they will make fires with the weapons and they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillaged them, says the Lord. So not only will God defeat them, but Israel will have lots of fuel. There's been a lot of thoughts about this. Obviously, Ezekiel is describing this in words that he would know. So we're talking about bows, shields, bucklers, swords. These are things he would know. If he talked about tanks and rockets and missile launchers, nobody of his day would know about that. Some speculate that when the invasion comes, all the military equipment that's left behind, there will be so much diesel fuel and gasoline and rocket fuel 
that Israel will be able to burn that fuel for seven years. Some speculate that there's going to be some sort of event that will disable all the electronics and we'll all be back to fighting with bows and arrows and that this will literally come true. They'll be burning bows and arrows and shields and bucklers. I can't say one way or the other. But the Bible says they'll have seven years' worth of fuel. Verse 11 of chapter 39. It will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will obstruct travelers because there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying them and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land and whenever anyone sees a man's bone, he shall set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. The name of the city will also be Hamana. Thus they shall cleanse the land. So once this battle takes place and you have all these bodies laying around, remember when you go back to the law, bodies defile the land. Anyone who touches a dead body becomes defiled. So the Jewish people will be going through burying the bodies in this one specific place in order to cleanse their defiled land. It'll be so they'll be so picky that they have to actually go through and look bone by bone. And notice that some people will be looking and they won't actually touch the bone, they'll just mark the place because others are designated to actually pick this stuff up and bury it. Only certain people will do that. So seven months of burying the dead. It takes seven months... So you read, starting in verse 17, And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come. Gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal which I am sacrificing for you. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, and with all the men of war, says the Lord God. So during this time, while they're burying bodies, seven months, you can't get them all at once. The birds and the beasts are, are going to feast on them too. So that could account for why there may be a few bones left here and there. Because the birds and the bees, beasts 
tend not to eat the bones. So we see the what. The invaders come against them. The Lord God defeats them. And then there's his long cleanup period. Why does all this happen? Well, verse 13 mentions plunder and booty. Silver and gold, livestock and goods. In short, in one word, it's greed. That's why the nations come against Israel. God has brought his people back and he's provided them with everything they need. These other nations see it and want it. It's covetousness. Greed. God cautions us against covetousness. And I think it's one of the things that we have to guard ourselves against judiciously in this materialistic culture we live in. Because everything, from every direction, we're getting bombarded with, you need this, you need that. And every time we see somebody who gets this or that, we have to remember, the Lord God said, I will provide for all your needs. Needs. Not wants and desires. Needs. So we guard against covetousness because that drove this whole invasion. God's people are dwelling safely in the land, being invaded because of greed. When does this all take place? This is where you find all kinds of theories. Some of them that have good biblical evidence, and some of them that, well, if you want to read about them, I'll give you some links to websites. The articles are very sound, but the comments in the blogs afterwards are really wild, some of them. Verse 8 says, After many days, in the latter years, in the latter days. These are expressions that the Bible uses. Uh, the phrase, in that day. Expressions the Bible uses to indicate events in the future, more particularly, events in the last days. So when it, we, it's somewhere in the future. In verse 8 it says they were brought out of the nations, plural. Verse 12, gathered from the nations, plural. That coincides pretty well with recent history. We have seen people making Aliyah from all over the world to Israel. Jewish people are coming back. So nations, plural, would suggest that these modern events that we're seeing have something to do with it. Our text also tells us that they dwell safely, unwalled villages without walls, no bars or gates. That indicates that they feel so safe they have dropped all their defenses. That doesn't exactly coincide with now. Israel is very conscious of their defense. The Israeli defense force is all over the place. Some have suggested that this battle already took place. They suggest it was the Six-Day War in 1967. Because true, a confederation of Arab nations that completely surrounded Israel did come against Israel in 1967. Israel did defeat them in six days. But we're given a whole lot of details about this battle. 
that did not happen at that time. So I would say, you know, they didn't take seven months to bury the dead. They didn't have things left behind that they could use for fuel for seven years. None of that stuff. I'd like to suggest there are two possibilities that would fit with what we read in our text. One is that this takes place just before or just after the tribulation. That would allow for just that, just before or just after the start of the tribulation, I should say, the start of it. And that would allow for the seven months of burying the bodies, the seven years of burning fuel. It might or might not be adequate for the peaceful, defenseless state that they're in. It would depend on you know how close they are to that covenant that they're going to sign with the Antichrist so they'll be safe for those first three and a half years until he breaks the covenant. Another very reasonable suggestion is just before the midpoint of the tribulation. And just before that midpoint, when the Antichrist breaks his covenant with them, they would feel very safe because they've been under this covenant with the Antichrist to protect them for three and a half years. It has some problems with the seven years of burning the fuel. Not insurmountable, but could happen. And it would also, if this invasion occurred just before that three and a half years was up, that would give the Antichrist a reason to step in and take over. It would give him a motive to break his covenant. So those are kind of the two things that I would look at as possible timings for this battle. Now you notice when I talked about why I skipped over why was God doing this. Let's go back to why God would do this. And I would suggest that verse 23 of chapter 38 will give us three reasons that God would actually set this up the way he did. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. I would suggest the reasons are to magnify himself, to sanctify himself, and that he be known. To magnify himself, we can look at what David knew about the Lord. The Lord promised King David that he would establish his throne forever. David's reaction was now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever. So David magnified the name of the Lord. When he was running from Saul, pretending insanity before Abimelech, he said, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. In Psalm 34. He knew in the worst of circumstances to praise and magnify the Lord. He says, But I am poor and sorrowful. 
Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song, and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Psalm 69. So David knew to magnify the Lord. In the New Testament, we switch from the Lord Jehovah to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, Paul, it says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. The Apostle Paul, writing from prison, did not desire that he be magnified, but rather Christ would be magnified in him. In Philippians 1, he said, But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. In the Old Testament, the name of the Lord Jehovah is magnified. In the New Testament, the name of Jesus is magnified. God delivered the Hebrews from the Egyptians at the Red Sea. He delivered Israel from Gog when he invaded. God is the one who magnifies and he always succeeds. Man's effort to magnify himself will ultimately fail. David and Paul had that key. When circumstances seem overwhelming, we all have a tendency to magnify the circumstances. To just look at it and just blow it up until it's insurmountable. Mountains out of molehills is the old adage. David and Paul had the key. When circumstances overwhelm, don't magnify the circumstances. Magnify God and watch God magnify himself. So God does this to magnify his name, to magnify himself. He does it to sanctify himself. In the last days, God will set apart his name for his very own purposes. In days past, sanctify has been used of God's people, of his altar, and of the sacrifices. All are set aside for God's purposes. Now he says, And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. That's from Ezekiel chapter 36. You know, today God's name is pretty commonly used in cursing. The expression, oh my God, is so common that it has its own abbreviation in texts and emails. You just say OMG and everybody knows what you're talking about. God tells us in this prophecy of the last days, no more of that. His name is no longer going to be treated as common, neither by the nations nor by his people Israel. God says of his people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. In the New Testament, we see Jesus 
in his high priestly prayer. He says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. John chapter 17. He asks the Father to sanctify his disciples. But because he is God, he can say, I sanctify myself. Only God can sanctify himself. And for emphasis, the Lord adds, sanctified by the truth. And what do we read elsewhere? But Jesus said, I am the truth. So again, sanctified by God. Paul prays for the Father to sanctify the saints at Thessalonica. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Being sanctified by God puts us in good company. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, For it was fitting for him, for whom all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Positionally, you and I are in a very special place. So God's name will be magnified. He will be sanctified. And lastly, he will be known. I did a search of the New King James Version, my computer search tool. I searched for the exact phrase, Know that I am the Lord. And it occurred 78 times in the Old Testament. 63 of those times are in the book of Ezekiel. When God says something that often, He's trying to tell us something. He has a message. In the book of Exodus, when the Lord is ready to bring the plagues on Egypt, as he brings Israel out of Egypt, he tells the Egyptians and the Hebrews that they are to know that I am the Lord. In one of the battles that Israel fought, the Syrians said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. And God said, Therefore I will deliver this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. God does these things so that you know who He is. In the New Testament, God continues this thought through His written Word. He says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. John chapter 20. Knowing who Jesus is is essential to our Christian faith. John tells us the Word was made flesh, referring to the Lord Jesus. And in 1 John 4, John writes, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. 
He also says these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You see, in these last days, God will make sure that everyone knows His name. Everyone will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'll close with this quotation, familiar quotation from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice he covers it all. Above the earth, on the earth, below the earth. Everyone will know who he is. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which assures us of our future, which assures us that we bow the knee and name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ even now. And it assures us that someday, either voluntarily or involuntarily, everyone will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, we thank you for this word that assures us of the final defeat of the enemies of your people. We thank you that we know our future with the Lord Jesus in your presence. We thank you now for this food you've provided for us. We ask you to please bless it to our bodies and us to your service. And we give you our thanks and pray all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.